called Hitting Bottom, we're basically in Jonah chapter two, but we start with the very end of Jonah chapter one. So chapter two is the famous part. That's the part you've been waiting for, the whale or the great fish, or as we have in the Greek New Testament, the sea monster. They, they over-translate and say the great fish, but it's actually the sea monster it, when Jesus was speaking. When Jesus was asked by the religious elite of his day for a sign, after they'd been witnessing him doing signs right and left, Jesus answered that the only sign that would be given them to this unbelieving generation was the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be at, in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So Jonah's time in the fish becomes the image of Jesus' death and resurrection, the miracle that changed the course of history. Now, I'm not going to unpack the sign of Jonah this morning. We're going to look at Jonah's prayer. Hopefully we'll talk about the sign of Jonah in a future sermon. If you still think that the book of Jonah is a simple story for wide-eyed children, I hope that our time in this book will disabuse you of that naivety. It is a story for children, but it's much more for adults. We are contemplating this morning a beautiful psalm. Jonah sinking to the very jaws of death and realizing how much he desires what he has been fleeing. This is the contradiction of the human soul. We run away from what we most desire, earnestly and deeply desire, how crazy we are. And we have here Jonah's conversion from rebellion to faith and obedience. Or do we? Nothing is simple in Jonah. A few months ago, I read a couple of books on Jonah. One book gives the following title for chapter two, Jonah's Repentance. A second book, equally serious and evangelical, titles its chapter on Jonah 2, Jonah's Non-Repentance. I have since read other books and commentaries, and there is no universal consensus on exactly the nature of Jonah's repentance, except that he says some beautiful and true things, but he also omits to say some other things that one would expect in his circumstances. It is complex, maybe like us human beings. So I propose we look together at this psalm and we each wrestle with the nature of Jonah's prayer and of course, our own prayer. First, a quick recap of chapter one. 
Jonah receives a call from God to go and preach to his sworn enemies, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. But Jonah decides that's not for him and takes a ship in the opposite direction. A terrible storm comes up and Jonah asleep in the hold is awoken and eventually confesses to being the cause of the storm. He tells the sailors to throw him overboard. They reluctantly do so and are seized with fear and worship when the sea suddenly stops its raging. As the sailors see Jonah disappear below the surface of the water, they think he's as good as dead. And that's where our story picks up today. It's, oh, you, no, now next. Okay, I know it's too small to read. It's not for that. What I want you to see is the red at the beginning and the red at the end. So these are the two bookends of, Sama, of, of Jonah's prayer. 117, now the Lord appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, now to the end, 210, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah, the, Yahweh appointed a huge fish or the verb that we use to describe the order of a king. Yahweh appointed the fish and he will appoint other things in the story and the fish swallowed. Yahweh spoke to the fish and the fish vomited. The fish was more obedient than Jonah. Jonah does not reveal his feelings in chapter one. Chapter one is the outside of Jonah, Jonah acting. But chapter two is the inside of Jonah, Jonah feeling. Tight-lipped Jonah from chapter one has become a fountain of words in chapter two. Stoic Jonah, has become effusive Jonah. Even more strangely, Jonah's prayer from solitary confinement isn't a lament, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Oh, okay, we're, this is where we're gonna stay for a little while, okay? Now, I wish this picture, I like this picture, but I wish it was like, Jonah way up here and the fish down here because Jonah's gonna fall for a while. There's a lot of things happening before he actually meets the fish. Can you imagine as he's sinking down and his lungs are about to burst, all the thoughts racing through his mind and suddenly realizing that he desperately wants to live and to return to full worship to his God. And now it's too late and the heavy gates of Sheol are about to clank shut behind him. Then suddenly this form gets bigger and bigger. Horrific monster is swimming straight at him and it opens its mouth. Maybe he lost consciousness as he was being swallowed. I know I did when my car was hit by a drunk driver. 
If so, when he came to, maybe a few seconds later, he must have wondered where he could possibly be. It was dark, wet, probably cramped, and most likely smelly. But he was alive. How God got oxygen into the fish's belly and that Jonah wasn't dissolved with gastric juices, I have no idea. It had to be a miracle. And certainly, for the God who raised Jesus from the dead, this is peanuts. Jonah is suddenly in solitary confinement for three days and three nights, but he doesn't know that. It's just indefinite for him. And yet, he is thankful. Sometimes, when we're stripped down to nothing, we start to appreciate. Hitting bottom, Jonah's attitude has changed. Next. In fact, good. Jonah's prayer has the form of a classic psalm of thanksgiving in which the psalmist praises God for a blessing he has received. In this case, a rescue from certain death. Then the psalmist describes the rescue, verses three to seven, and then finally he finishes with the promise, a vow, which we see in verses eight and nine. You don't see them, but they're there. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Verse two is a summary of the whole Psalm. It also gives us an excellent example of parallelism. So one of the most important characteristics in Hebrew poetry, you can see the repeated colors show the parallel idea. So red is distress, green is hope, the French understand that, and blue is the answer. Hebrew poets build their ideas, putting similar and contrasting ideas uh, together and building layers of meaning. A psalm of thanksgiving was composed after the trial and sung, if possible, in the temple. But here Jonah is in the trial. Jonah recognizes that the sea monster sent by Yahweh has become his savior. saving him from certain death. But his submarine lifeboat is hardly a five-star accommodation. He doesn't know how long he's in there for either. Have you ever considered how God can use the worst we can imagine, like a sea monster swallowing us up, to actually do us good? A couple of hundred years after this, what was remaining of the people of Israel, the kingdom of Judah and the 
the line of David were swallowed up by a monster. The Babylonian Empire came and deported them to Babylon. They were there for 70 years before they were able to return. And yet that period of exile was, many scholars believe that that's when the canon of the Old Testament came together and was organized. So God did use that exile. But there's also other stories, people talking about how their heart attack was the thing that put them on their back and made them think about their life. So we must not fear the monsters. They can be our savior. Slide five. In verses three to six of Jonah's prayer, red dominates. He describes the afflictions hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The current swirled around about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. In a way, Jonah is right. God has thrown him into the turbulence, banished him. But in another way, I feel like Jonah isn't taking his share of the responsibility. After all, his disobedience is the reason that he's in the water. In the middle of this section, we see one line of green Jonah's declaration of hope, yet I will look again to your holy temple. Next slide. But you, my Lord, my God, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Okay, let's go to slide seven, waves and breakers. I was struck by the similarity. Look at that line. It's almost word for word. All your waves and breakers swept over me. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. So these two psalms are describing something parallel. And let's look at uh, slide eight. Here we also have, remember the psalmist of 42 was longing for the temple, longing for communion, and just as Jonah. And now we get to slide nine. We have the resounding finale. 
Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah finishes his prayer with a crescendo, landing on his own vows in the eternal fact that salvation comes from the Lord. You can almost hear him shouting his last line as we do with our hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And with this, the fish ejects him onto dry land. So after this beautiful psalm, Jonah is released. What's my problem? Have you ever been seriously offended by someone? Maybe they blew up at you and they said really hurtful things and you were so taken aback that you didn't even know what to say. And then sometime later they came back all friendly and lovey-dovey. No mention of their scene. Were you ready to reconnect as though nothing had happened? Or did you feel as though something essential was missing? If you're like me, you went along with it, but felt a lot more guarded. Put an extra layer of protection around your heart. Contrary to this, have you ever had a situation where there's an estrangement and then there is a real apology, there's real back and forth, and you feel the relationship is deeper and stronger than before. But so many of our relationships have some degree to incomplete of incompleteness. Jonah really seems to want to reconnect with God in his life of faith, to end his fugue. Jonah shows that he has faith in God, even though he's still in the dark, dank dungeon. He has confidence that God will free him. He's even ready to start over and to take up the mission God gave him in the first place, to obey this time. He's grateful in a really difficult circumstance. And that says something. And God commands the fish to free him. Isn't that God's approval? But nowhere does Jonah say anything close to, forgive me, I have sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son or your prophet. Remember in chapter one, the narrator portrays the pagan mariners as more pious than the prophet? They're quick to pray, to worship, to vow, where Jonah flees and remains stubbornly silent. They try desperately to save Jonah while Jonah was at least initially indifferent to their plight. In verse eight, Jonah speaks the truth when he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. 
But then he adds, but as for me, as though he is better, is feeling superior to the Ninevites or even to the mariners, or is he thinking about the idolatry of his own heart, where he had put his own judgment before Yahweh's? On the good side, Jonah expresses heartfelt gratitude. Jonah longs for God in worship. Jonah has faith that God will rescue him, even though he has no idea how. On the bad side, Jonah omits to confess his sin, recognize, name his rebellion. Chapter one has made this rebellion clear to us readers. And Jonah seems to feel superior to the very sailors who had tried to save him and who showed both more pity and piety than he. This book, like much good literature, doesn't spell everything out and give it up at the first reading, but leaves us to puzzle and to ponder. I think Jonah's prayer will become clearer in the context of the whole book of Jonah. We have yet to see chapters three and four. So what was God's opinion of Jonah's prayer? Was it approval because he released Jonah or side of what? We finish with the fish. Okay, it's a funny picture. The text uses a very strong word to describe the act of ejecting Jonah from the fish. Vomit, which has just as disgusting overtones in Hebrew as it does in English. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. Several commentators suggest that this choice of words describes God's opinion of Jonah's resistant pride, and I am inclined to agree. What Jonah is missing is the tremendous grace of God If we don't get that, we, we have a, a twin problem. One, we don't see ourselves properly. We slough over our own pride, our own shortcomings. And we tend to feel superior to others when we don't know what's really in their heart. So I'm going to read my closing prayer here. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We long to be in fellowship with you as Jonah longed to reconnect. We want Jonah's gratitude and ability to praise you in the midst of our trial and his faith that knows that you will deliver us even if we don't know how. But Lord, like Jonah, I am plagued 
with the tendency to be blind to my own sin and to feel superior to others. Teach me your humility and help me to receive and embrace your grace and share that same grace with all those around me. I pray especially for those of us in leadership roles that this will characterize the leadership of Emmaus, that we will be humble and gracious people, aware of your grace and giving your grace. And that you will help us to open and show that grace to all those outside our community. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.